Well, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Revelation chapter 3. We are finishing our series, eight weeks, looking at Revelation chapters 1 to 3, and we end our series in this last letter to the church in Laodicea. And so uh, we've journeyed quite a bit looking at these different letters. Uh, It's been a very exciting uh, time. I'll I'll be honest, uh, this I actually believe might be uh, one of the hardest series I've ever had to preach, at least personally coming and studying and sitting under God's Word. But it's been a tremendous blessing, and I hope that uh, you have also been blessed along the way. And so, as we look at Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 14 to 22. Uh, if you have a Bible or a sermon insert, it will also be projected up here. So please hear now the reading of God's Holy Word, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him, and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me, friends. Father, we thank you for all of Scripture and all of the variety of genres that the Scriptures come to us. We thank you that in Revelation we have letters that Jesus himself spoke to the churches, which we now receive, can be encouraged by, can be challenged by, can be blessed by, edified by, rebuked by. And so, Lord... As your spirit speaks to us, I pray we would have ears to hear. And as we listen, that our hearts would begin to wrestle. As we just sang, speak, O Lord. And we know that you're building your church through your word. That without the word, any church growth will simply fade away. But root us in your word to make us a strong church, a healthy church. So that as we hear your voice, we would listen and be changed. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So we're finishing our series, eight-week-long series, as we've toured Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And along the way, we've considered many things. And so I have up here uh, just a short little table that I'd like to go through First, we looked at the church of Ephesus, and we saw that it was a cold church. The church in Ephesus needed to remember that their first love was 
Jesus, to return back to the first love. And they could do that only as they remembered Jesus' spousal love for them. Then we looked at the church of Smyrna, which was a suffering church that needed to endure suffering for Christ as they remembered how much Christ had suffered for them, the ultimate suffering of death on a cross. Third, we looked at the church in Pergamum, which was a compromising church that needed to be faithful to Christ in all things, not just the extraordinary things, but even the ordinary things, because he was faithful to them. In Thyatira, we saw that it was a tolerant church and that they needed to uphold truth, not tolerance, even at great loss to themselves, even at great cost to themselves. And they could do it because they were promised to have Jesus, the morning star. In Sardis, we saw a sleeping church. They needed to wake up from a spiritual coma by remembering CPR, that Christ clothed them, that he preserved their name in the book of life, and that he remembers them before the Father. Last week in Philadelphia, we saw that the church was a weak church, but they needed to celebrate their weakness because in Christ, their weakness was turned to strength through his power and his promises. And then today in Laodicea, we see a lukewarm church that needed to be zealous in their faith by relying on Jesus and not on themselves. And so we've gone through this over eight weeks. I'm sure it's been, it's been difficult to remember over two months. But as we consider all seven churches, we realize that no one description perfectly describes our church. Now, of course, we would like to think probably that we are most like the church in Philadelphia. Well, one, because we're quite literally in Philadelphia. But secondly, because the church in Philadelphia had nothing wrong with them. And we like to think of ourselves that way. But the truth is actually more like this. We see a bit of ourselves in every church, and every church speaks a little bit to us. Sort of like when you go to get something tailored, and you're sitting there, and you're in a room with multiple mirrors, each mirror giving you a different angle, a different perspective to more fully see yourself, so that the parts you couldn't see now become clear. So, too, the letters are written to highlight and to show us different things. You know, in reality, some of us know and often we put forth our good side. If I pulled out a camera and I went to take a picture of you, some of you know which is your good side. Some of you know how to dip your shoulder and give the smile. Some of you know the good angles. And we may be tempted in the same way when we present ourselves to God to put on that look to show him our good side as a church. But we certainly can't position ourselves and only show God the best parts about us. It would be detrimental for us to think that our best parts are the entirety of who we are. So, in fact, as we looked at these letters, we saw that some of the letters, they encourage us to persevere in the strengths that we have. And we need to take that to heart. But other parts of the letters challenge us to turn away from our weaknesses that Jesus rebukes. And we need to take that to heart. And all the letters remind us of hope given to us in promises to those who conquer. And we need to take those to heart. This last letter to the church in Laodicea, one would expect Jesus to end on a high note. That he would end sort of lifting us up and blessing us tremendously. But he doesn't. 
In fact, Laodicea is a church where Jesus commends nothing good. And it's not only that, but many scholars have noticed that some of Jesus' strongest words that he's ever uttered in the entire Bible are recorded in this letter. You see, by the time Jesus is wrapping things up, he doesn't end by patting the church on the shoulder, but by delivering a knockout punch. And so when we come to this letter, know that coming into the letter to the church in Laodicea is like walking into a boxing ring. And Mike Tyson is on the other side, and he's ready to both to hit and to bite. And so we come to Laodicea ready to get a little beat up. So here's the gospel truth of our passage. Lukewarm faith becomes zealous faith when you rely on Jesus for everything. Lukewarm faith becomes, it transforms into zealous faith when we rely on Jesus for everything. And so we're going to look at this passage. We're going to consider four things this afternoon. The issue of being lukewarm, the cause for being lukewarm, the solution to being lukewarm, and the loss in being lukewarm. So here we go. We'll start with the first point, the issue of being lukewarm. Verse 15, if you look at it, begins very typically, I know your works. And sometimes that's followed by a good thing, but here it's followed by a very bad thing. Because when Jesus says, I know your works, he doesn't come in and do a little jab. He comes with an uppercut to the jaw. Because he continues, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Jesus accuses the Christians in the church of being lukewarm in their faith and in the way they are living. See, what's interesting is that in the previous six letters, we've seen Jesus display a tremendous and intimate knowledge of each city's unique culture and history, and he's always bringing it up and making allusions to it. Well, in this letter, Jesus demonstrates an intimate knowledge of the geography and the location of Laodicea. Laodicea was located in Asia Minor in the uh, Lycus Valley And it was situated near two other cities. And this is important because one city to the north of Laodicea, Hierapolis, was a city that was known for its hot springs. And if you've ever been to a hot springs and you sit in the water, you know the way it soothes you, the way it sort of is medicinal, it heals you. And so the hot springs in Hierapolis, everyone longed to have them. Well, south of Laodicea was a city called Colossae. And Colossi, or sorry, Colossi, and it was known for cold and clear streams that made for excellent spring water, excellent drinking water. And so these streams, they yielded life-giving, refreshing water every time you drew from it. And so you have two cities, one that has hot springs, healing waters, one that has cold springs, refreshing water. And then you have this city, Laodicea, that was far from any accessible water source. And because it was further from the water source, these aqueducts were created, and they were constructed to channel the water into the city. But by the time the water reached Laodicea, the water was very tepid, it was stagnant, it was lukewarm. And so people in that city were neither refreshed by the coolness of its water, nor were they healed by its warmth and heat. The water in Laodicea was unusable. It was no good. 
Now, you can sort of imagine drinking water like this. Some of you are coffee drinkers. When you go into a coffee shop on a nice, hot summer day, you want an iced coffee to refresh you, to cool you down. Or if you go in a day like today, a brisk autumn day, you want a nice, hot coffee to warm you up inside. But what season of the year do you walk into a coffee shop and ask for a nice, lukewarm cup of joe? That's been sitting on the counter for hours. I'd like a lukewarm coffee. How would you like that? Five hours just sitting out. Iced coffee or hot coffee is what we want. Nobody wants lukewarm coffee. It's undrinkable. In the same way Jesus is saying to the church in Laodicea, this is what you've become. Foul, unusable, undrinkable This is what you have become to me. And that's really a strong statement because in other parts of the letters to the churches, Jesus gives some amazingly comforting and encouraging words. But here he says, you are unusable. In fact, he goes on to say this, and it may come across offensive. He says, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now that word spit you out is a very gentle way of putting it. What do you spit out? Well, when you brush your teeth, you you spit out mouthwash. You eat something sour, you spit that out. But that's not the imagery Jesus is describing. Jesus will not simply spit out lukewarm Christians. In fact, the word used here is closer to this. Jesus will vomit out lukewarm Christians. The word spit out in Greek is the same word used In Isaiah 19.14, there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. It's what the apostles used. And in that Septuagint, in Isaiah 19.14, it says this. The Lord has mingled with her a spirit of confusion, and they will make Egypt stagger in all its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. The Greek word there for vomit is the same word for the word used here for spit out. And the image is unsettling. It's meant to be. Jesus does not sip the water and then politely spit it out. He gags over the disgust of what he's tasting. He gags over the lukewarm faith of people who say they believe in him and are his disciples but live so differently. Now, it makes you wonder, how repulsive must something be to cause you to gag and to throw it up? When was the last time you gagged and threw something up? You know, I know a youth pastor who once, uh, he was a a prankster, and he pranked students in his youth group when the church had this Korean uh, language school on a hot summer day, and the AC was broken. And so he found these old Snapple iced tea bottles, and he went to the kitchen, and he took soy sauce, and he poured them into the Snapple bottles, and he went around sharing, drink this, it'll cool you down. And when those kids, without thinking twice, just took a huge swig of that, did they simply spit it out? No, they gagged. They vomited. Or if that picture isn't clear enough, think about having two-week-old milk, two weeks past the expiration date. And when you pick it up, you just hear the chunks swishing around inside. You open it. It looks more like yogurt than it does milk. And even the thought of that sort of makes your body just feel, I mean, I hope it does. It makes your body just feel like it's repulsive. 
And that's important because when Jesus thinks about lukewarm faith, this is what he's feeling according to what he says. Faith that is stale and stagnant, ineffective and of no good, is faith that Jesus will not tolerate or approve of. So if that's what Jesus doesn't want, what does he want? What is the opposite of lukewarm faith? What kind of faith is he looking for? Well, the answer actually comes in verse 19 when Jesus says, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. The opposite of lukewarm faith is zealous faith. So Jesus is saying, stop being lukewarm. I'm reproving you. I'm disciplining you. What I want from you is zeal for me. That's the goal. I want you to repent because you've become lukewarm and you've lost zeal. Now, think about your faith. What does your faith look like? Is your faith the faith that Jesus wants? Is it zealous and passionate and life-giving and on fire and contagious and overflowing and urgent and bold faith? Or is your faith lukewarm and lackluster, boring, unexciting, plateaued, vanilla, ineffective, stale, stagnant? You see, this is not an abstract question or a mere intellectual exercise to consider because it has eternal ramifications. You can't keep on going ignoring the state of your faith forever because at one point you're going to have to face the sound of music and it will be better, I tell you, to wrestle with it now than when it's too late. So I ask you, is your faith zealous or is it lukewarm? As you answer that question, think about this. How do you think Jesus is responding to the state of your faith? What do you think his response is? Do you think think he's angry? Do you think he's frustrated? Do you think he's sad? Is he indifferent? Because Jesus tells you, if this is your faith, he tells you what he's like. He says, my stomach is turning You are nauseating me. I want to throw you up. You see, it's no coincidence that in this letter that addresses lukewarm faith, a lukewarm discipleship, a lukewarm Christianity, Jesus has nothing good to say. Because if you are lukewarm, then there's of no use. You are of no use. Now, this is a strong statement. Friends, we must not be fooled into believing that stagnant faith a faith that's just kind of plateaued, a faith that we're just so comfortable with, is what it means to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's not what it means. But the other danger is this. When you swing the pendulum to the other side and you justify your lukewarm faith because you say this, I don't want to be like those fanatical Christians. They give a bad witness to Jesus. They're a little crazy. I don't want to be like that. That's what zealous means. No way. When you become lukewarm as a result, here's the thing, though, if you're using that excuse. If you become lukewarm as a result, you may be successful in not giving a bad witness to Christ. But I'll tell you what you're successful in. Giving no witness to Christ. What does zealous faith look like? Or just as an illustration of it, William Carey, the missionary to India who famously said, Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. That's what zealous faith looks like. 
Or is that true in your life? Expecting great things from God and then attempting great things for God. Or is your motto something more like attempt some things for God and then you can expect some things from God? Because I think that's the way a lot of us and most of us actually live. And the way we think about that is life is about moderation. It's about balance. It's about steady faith that's grounded in reality. Right? When I was a kid, it was about emotion and experience. But, but now it's, it's more about you know, just uh, being steady and steadfast. And yes, that is true. But if you search your heart, you search your motives, is that really what you are going for, or is it because you're just so complacent and sitting in a lukewarm pool of your own faith? Are you really just looking for ways to not have to go all in with Jesus? Because that's the way a lot of us want to live. We want to keep some things for ourselves. It weighs heavy on my heart to see gospel-believing Christians who claim to have a Jesus-centered faith begin to then settle down to room temperature. It breaks my heart. Is that you today? Is your faith? Now, when when we say zealous, we need to know what that looks like. It's not being fanatical. But are you swinging and being Merely like a thermometer. What does a thermometer do? It just measures the temperature of the room around it. But are Christians called to be thermometers and have your faith just model the lukewarm faith around you? Or are you called to be a thermostat? What does a thermostat do? It changes the temperature around. These are difficult words to hear. I think that's why today's... uh, Attendance is smaller. People people read this letter and they said, oh, I'm not coming to church today. You know, because like a patient receives an unfavorable diagnosis from their doctor, and you just have to receive it, so too we need to receive these words of Jesus who's speaking truth into your life. And why does he speak so harshly? Because he says in verse 19, to those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. I want to speak these harsh things to you because I love you. Well, what's the cause for being lukewarm? That's our second point, the cause for being lukewarm. Now, having told us what our condition is, Jesus goes on to explain why is it that we've become that way. And I'll tell you the answer up front. Self-sufficiency, self-dependence, self-reliance. This is the cause for being lukewarm in faith. You see, the church became lukewarm because they didn't understand how much they needed Jesus not just for their daily salvation or for their salvation, but for their daily bread and their daily breath. You see, look at verse 17. Jesus says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's what you think. The reality is not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. You see, Jesus reveals the true condition of their lives, which is spiritual. It's not physical. It's not material. See, last week we talked about the church of Laodicea, and we said that they were a strong church. They were very rich, but Jesus in his evaluation saw them as very weak. Now, this is interesting because Laodicea, you have to know a little bit about the history of this city. They were known for three things. They were known for money, manufacturing, and medical advancement. Three things, money, manufacturing, and medical advancement. And because they had these three things in abundance, they didn't need to rely on anybody else. 
They were entirely self-sufficient. You see, first they were known for their money. The city said, we're rich. They're claiming to be rich. And Jesus says, no, you're poor. You see, here's the thing about Laodicea. In AD 60, there was a great earthquake, and it totally like ruined the city. It damaged the city. And in these kinds of emergencies and disasters, cities would turn to Rome, to the Roman government, and, the, and Rome would come, and they would give them aid and support. But Laodicea was so rich that when the earthquake devastated the city, they refused help from the government, and they were able to fund their own rebuilding. That's how rich of a city they were. So because they had all this money, they failed to see that they were spiritually poor. They weren't able to recognize their spiritual poverty and their great need of Jesus. The second thing the city was known for was their manufacturing. It says, we've prospered. Jesus says, you're naked. Because in Laodicea, the manufacturing of clothes and woolen carpets uh, was their primary industry. Because in that area, they had uh, these very rare uh, sheep that they reared locally, and it, uh, they had this glossy black wool, which was a distinctive product. This is what all the wealth, wealthy upper class people wore. People wouldn't go, oh, is that you know, Louis Vuitton? They would go, oh, is that a Laodicean black wool? You know, that looks nice on you. And because the city was centered at a central crossroad, trade, uh, the trade route was readily available. Actually, it's ironic because, because they were where this trade route was, which is why they were so far away from the water. But because of that, manufacturing was, was doing so well. They, they produced all, this beautiful, all these beautiful garments. And because they manufactured all these garments, they failed to see that they were naked. They thought they could clothe themselves. They were exposed in their shame, and they didn't realize how much they needed Jesus. The third thing is that they were known for was their medical advances. They said, we need nothing, and Jesus' response is, you're blind. You see, Laodicea had a famed medical school, um, and the field that they particularly focused on was uh, ophthalmology, which is uh, focused on the physiology of the eyeball, the diseases of the eye. And not only were there a lot of famous eye doctors in the city, but the city produced a very special ointment that was made uh, from a pulverized rock in the area. And so because of all this medical advancement, because they had this special eye salve, uh, they failed to see that they were spiritually blind. They could not see and perceive their sin and their great need of Jesus. My point is simply this. This city was so self-reliant because they had money, they had great manufacturers, and they had medical advances. But those things that they thought they relied on, that they could rely on, was the very reason that they were growing lukewarm because they were blind to everything else. It was impossible for them to understand their own need. And the same thing is true of us, the same spiritual realities. We are poor. We are blind. We are naked. We all desperately need Jesus. But do you realize it? Because when you rely on yourself and you don't need Jesus, then your faith begins to go lukewarm. See, Jesus says that we are poor. And when he says you're poor, what he's talking about is spiritual poverty. He's basically saying you're spiritually poor. You don't have righteousness. You don't have the power to change yourselves. You have spiritual debt that you owe to God. And the Laodiceans were saying, we're not poor. We have lots of money. We have lots of wealth. Well, what do we say? We say we're not poor. We have righteous deeds. We have moral resolve. We have a good conscience. We're good people who do good things. 
But the reality is this, that you can try as hard as you want to be a better person, and it may work for a little while, but you will never really change who you are, only the things that you do. We want to be more loving. We want to extend greater forgiveness. We want to be more patient. And I, I could tell you that I can do it for a while, but then I will eventually come across somebody that I really don't like. Somebody will do something to me that I can't forgive. Somebody will test the limits of my patience. And then what? I quickly revert, revert back to sinful ways. And I need to realize, we need to realize that we're spiritually poor. We need Christ's power to change us. Jesus says that we're all blind. The Laodiceans were saying, we're not blind. We have the best eye specialist in the entire world. We produce the only eye salve that can fix your sight. Jesus is saying, I'm not talking about your physical sight. I'm talking about spiritual blindness. You cannot see the world as it is because of your sin. You can't see God as he truly is because of your sin. You can't see yourself as you truly are because of your sin. Now, what do we say? We say, we're not blind. We see clearly. What does the world say? We say, we can determine our own truths. We can logically reason. We have reason. We can reason our way to understanding what's true and what's not. But the reality is that no matter how introspective you are, no matter how much time you spent looking inward, you can never see the true depths of your own sin. You can never think about God so much that you would truly understand the depths of his holiness apart from the Spirit of God working in your life. Jesus says that we are all naked. Now, he's talking about a spiritual nakedness, that we're all exposed before God that we can't do anything to actually cover us. The Laodiceans objected, we're not naked. We have the most coveted garments. We have the rarest black wool. We manufacture so much clothing. What do you mean we're naked? And we may object in the same way too. We're not naked. Do you see how successful I am at work? Do you see my reputation with other people? Do you see my generosity to the needy? Do you see all my education and my degrees? And we use those things to try to cover our true brokenness. But underneath all of our attempts of wearing righteous robes, we can't really cover our sin and our own guilt. I mean, we could try to scrub as much as we can to remove the stains of sin in our lives that we can hide. We can go in our homes and in our rooms and in our closets and we can retreat to the secret chambers of our hearts, but even then we can't hide from God. We can run to the most hidden cave on the most secluded island, on the most remote place on the entire earth, but we cannot escape the sight of God. We cannot truly clothe ourselves. You see, here's the problem. When you are self-reliant and you don't recognize your need for Jesus, your faith becomes lukewarm. Because we have no awareness of how much we need him and we're not desperately falling on him in dependence. Well, what's the solution? And here's our third point. You see, here's what's amazing. As disgusted as Jesus is at us, as turned away as he is, at our lukewarm faith, he's not disgusted and turned away at you. Friends, this is wonderful news because Jesus loves us even when we're at our worst. So he gives us counsel. What does he say? He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. 
How can your faith, if you are just kind of complacently existing in lukewarmness, how can you be more zealous? And the solution is that you need to recognize all that Jesus offers you freely. You need to recognize your need and what Jesus is offering. He offers gold refined by fire, meaning he offers true riches in himself because we are spiritually poor. He offers what? To remove our old black stained garments, to clothe us in white garments, to cover our shame and nakedness. He anoints our eyes with salve so that we can behold his true glory and the immeasurable riches of his grace. Now Jesus is picking up on an Old Testament theme. In Isaiah 55, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And it's interesting because Jesus says, Come, buy, buy, but he recognizes you don't have money. So in the same way, when it says in verse 18, Jesus says, Come, buy from me gold, buy from me white garments, buy from me this eye salve. He doesn't mean come with righteous deeds, come with your good merit. He means come, you who have no money, buy without money. When Jesus counsels you to come, he's saying, you can buy freely. Why? Because I've paid a terribly high cost to give you these things. You see, once you start relying on Jesus, then the lukewarm faith in your life begins to boil and begins to get hot. Self-dependency starts becoming Jesus' dependency because you realize that the wealth that you thought mattered, the clothing that you thought hid you, the medicine that you thought healed you, that all of that makes no sense. You have money? Well, Jesus is saying your money is foreign currency in the kingdom of God. You can't pay for that in the kingdom. Jesus says you think you're clothed? You're no more clothed than the emperor who walked, thought he had new clothing when he was truly naked. Jesus says that you think you have medicine, but it's only clouding your sight even more. So give up on what you think you have and come to me and I will give you everything freely. And when this realization comes over you. Jesus becomes for you something so much more different than what he wants. Jesus comes for you, becomes for you water in the desert. He becomes for you a life raft in the ocean, a rope on a cliff, fire during the winter, light in the darkness. Jesus comes, becomes for you gold in your poverty, white garments in your nakedness, ointment in your blindness. He is able to give you refined gold in your poverty because he was rich, but he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Jesus is able to give you white garments in your nakedness because he was stripped naked for you as they, were, as they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Mark 15, 24. Jesus is able to offer you sight in your blindness because he was blindfolded for you by his enemies as they struck him and beat him and mocked him and said, prophesy who hit you. Luke twenty two sixty four. You see, if you know all that you have in Christ, all that he offers you, you cannot stay lukewarm in your faith. Because you cannot be self-reliant. Well, there's also a picture, though, 
of warning, which leads to our last point, the loss in being lukewarm. When you are lukewarm in your faith, you are missing out on something incredible. I'm not sure how many of you know what FOMO is, a fear of missing out. And the picture here, I think, should create in people the greatest FOMO. You see, our passage ends with a very humbling image. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, what kind of scene is painted? Jesus stands at a door and he knocks, but he not only knocks, he calls out your name. And this is one of the most famous Bible uh, scenes in the Bible. Yet here's what we cannot be confused by, because a lot of Christians misunderstand this. This is not a picture of Jesus knocking on the heart of an unbeliever. This is not Jesus asking for permission to enter a sinner's heart. Remember the context. Jesus is writing to a church. He is writing to Christians. So what's actually going on in this picture? Jesus is not a homeless vagrant looking for shelter and some food. He's not looking for a residence in your life. He's not a salesman offering you salvation. He is a friend who has come over your place to eat and to share fellowship with you in the intimacy of your home. At the time of the Bible, eating a meal together was much more than just having food. It was sharing life on life. Now, I want you to think about this with me. Why does Jesus knock? Why does Jesus knock? If he's talking to Christians, then doesn't Jesus have every right to just open the door and walk right in? Isn't the Christian's life and the Christian's body Jesus' holy temple where he dwells? Does a master need to knock to enter the home of his servant? You know, in verse 21, Jesus says, I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Jesus is a conqueror. He's a ruling conqueror. Does a ruler need to knock to enter the home of his subject? So yes, I suppose Jesus could force his way into your life. He could knock down the door with the power of his word. He could come in through the back. Yet what does Jesus do? He patiently stands at the door and he knocks. He knocks invitingly and he calls your name. He calls your name intimately that you might hear his voice, recognize it, and open the door. Friends, when you're lukewarm in faith, when you're so very comfortable and you're just slouching on the couch of your Christian life, you will not hear his footsteps approaching and his knock will go unnoticed. And when he calls your name, you will be half asleep and you won't hear it. And that will be an incredible loss because he has come to have fellowship with you. Almost 200 years ago, there was a painting done by William Hunt called Light of the World. It's hanging in a cathedral in London. I have a picture of it up here. And in this scene, Jesus stands in front of a door. It's clearly evening. With his left hand, he's holding a lantern, and with his right hand, he is knocking. But if you notice on the door, it is covered in overgrown vines. Because the painter was showing that the door has not been opened in a very long time. But if you look very carefully, the artist made a very interesting interpretive decision. 
The door has no handle. It has no doorknob. It has no keyhole. Because the door can only be opened from the inside. You see, Jesus says, I'll come and I'll knock and I'll call out. But for you to have fellowship with me, you must open the door so I can come in and commune with you. Friends, lukewarm faith begins when the Savior stands on the other side of the door that remains closed. He's actually close, yet you think he is distant. He is very near, yet you think he is very far. But zealous faith begins when you open the door and he sits at the table where you fellowship with Jesus face to face, hand in hand, trusting in him and not yourself for everything you need. Now here's the reality. I think some of you have the door of your heart covered in overgrown vines and trailing ivy because that door has been shut for way too long. Maybe it's been a while since you last opened the door to Jesus. Maybe it's been a while since he last came and ate with you and you with him. Lukewarm faith doesn't become zealous when more of you is at the center. It becomes zealous when more of Jesus is at the center. And he becomes at the center when you open the door and you fellowship with him. And so if he's knocking at your door today, if by the Spirit of God he is speaking into your heart, then listen for it and hear his voice and open the door so he may come in and he may fellowship with you at the table. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me. Father, we thank you that in this passage you speak so very convictingly to us about your disgust at lukewarm faith, about how it's nauseating to you when we are neither hot nor cold, but undrinkable. Yet even in the midst of this, we thank you, Jesus, that you would still offer yourself to come to us and that you would knock at the door of our hearts and you would say, I have come to eat with you. I have come to have life on life with you. I have come to fellowship with you. Would you hear my knock? Would you respond to my voice? Would you open the door? Father, I pray that for all of us gathered here today, that all of us, Lord, would open our hearts to have fellowship with Jesus, to rely on him, to to get rid of the wealth that we think matters to receive the riches Christ has given to us when he became poor for us. I pray, God, that we would get rid of the things that we think clothe us and make us righteous before you and instead wear the white garments Jesus has given to us as he was stripped naked for us on the cross. I pray, God, that we would abandon 
Whatever ointment we think gives us sight to receive the salve Jesus offers, as he himself was blinded, as he was beaten, mocked, and scorned for us. I pray, Lord, that as we receive everything he gives to us freely, that that would begin to boil our hearts to bring us out of lukewarmness into zealous faith for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.